Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Dr. Andy Thomas is a psychiatrist at University of Virginia Student Health Services. The 9-11 attacks triggered an interest in suicide terrorism, which led to the discovery of an unappreciated world of research into how and why human minds generate religious beliefs, something I've also been tremendously fascinated in. Andy has written, quote, Why We Believe in Gods, A Concise Guide to the Science of Faith, unquote, which brings that world to anyone interested. So, Dr. Thompson, welcome, my friend. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Um, Thank you so much for having me again. Thank you, Eric, for organizing this. And uh, welcome, everybody. The next time that you go outside and look at the Milky Way, I want you to think about it differently. I want you to think about it as the Milky Way bar and grill. It turns out that our universe has billions, literally billions of liters of alcohol ethyl alcohol, methyl alcohol, vinyl alcohol. And they tend, the the alcohol tends to be close to where new stars are forming. And in our uh, galaxy, it is the Milky Way that is full of booze. And it is thought that comets brought uh, alcohol to the surface of the earth. And it may be that alcohol was crucial to the very formation of life. And there may have literally been an alcoholic haze surrounding earth Uh, for several millions of years. So you can make a case that uh, we may owe our existence in part to alcohol. And I want to start this uh, story tonight at a little bit different place, a little closer to home, uh, Dayton, Tennessee, because we're approaching now the 100th anniversary of the Scopes trial in 1925. And uh, for those of you who remember the history Um, William Jennings Bryant, the former Secretary of State and uh, presidential candidate, uh, prosecuted John Scopes. Uh, John Scopes was uh, charged with violating the Butler Act, which was you can't teach what an evolution, you can't teach human evolution. And Scopes had done that. And uh, defending him was Clarence Darrow. And it was one of the most famous trials. And even though Clarence Darrow called Bryant as a hostile witness, completely took him apart on the stand, uh, exposed his foolish fundamentalist belief. uh, You know, do you believe Jonah uh, stayed in the belly of the whale? Uh, Despite all of that, Butler um, Scopes was convicted. But the reason I bring it up is because few people realize that after the Scopes trial, even though evolution was in textbooks, after that point in time, the textbooks publishers basically said, we're out of here. And uh, evolution slowly fell away from uh, being included in textbooks. Even the first woman governor of Texas instructed uh, teachers, I think it was, to take scissors and cut out the parts in the textbooks that had uh, evolution. And it got to the point where evolution literally disappeared from the textbooks. I want you to look at this quote, which is from 1941. I'll let you all read it. Uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, we have got some uh, sight. Okay, I'll read it. Okay. Uh, Do you want me to read it? Would you like to read it, Eric? Uh, I'll be happy to read it. Okay. Uh, 
So from Riddle, 1941, biology is still pursued by long shadows from the Middle Ages, shadows screening from our people what is, or shadows screening from our people what our science has learned of human origins, a science sabotage because its central and binding principle displaces a hollowed myth. That's, wow, that's great. Yeah, and that's 1941. And then with Sputnik, there was a pushback for more science education, including biology and uh, evolution. But even despite that, as you know, it was a real fight. And from that period on, it has been an uphill battle to get evolution taught even in high school biology textbooks. There've been 19 federal cases. And as you know, it's still a struggle. And one of the outgrowths of that is that we don't have basic education of evolution in biology for your standard high school student going into college, the basic Darwinian uh, natural selection, the modern Darwinian synthesis is not taught. And why is this important? Because it sheds light on all of biology, it sheds light on psychology, and as I hope to show you tonight, sheds light on substances. And what is my goal tonight? My goal is to really do a sort of a deep, uh, a deep Darwinian dive into uh, substance use. And I think, or at least I hope, you will see that if you start to apply the basic principles of evolutionary biology, it opens up a completely different understanding of uh, substance use and substance abuse. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a roadmap. Uh, I've never met a slide I didn't like. Uh, bear with me. This is going to be a, a, a bit of a road trip, but I hope it's uh, worth it. So sit back, light up, you know, pop a beer and you know, a glass of wine, and, and we'll, we'll roll down the road together. But you're going to hear about uh, natural selection, sexual selection, uh, but also something from evolutionary biology you might not be familiar with, life history theory, and something new called cliff-edge selection. And I think all of these things uh, help us understand substance use and abuse. Um, I have no conflicts of interest. This talk is not being um, sponsored by Philip Morris or Anheuser-Busch or the California Weed Growers Association. Um, everybody knows the problems, the social problems we have with uh, alcohol and alcoholism and uh, the busted relationships, the drunk driving, um, the cirrhosis, the medical illnesses, uh, all the bad things that alcohol can cause, including bad tattoos and karaoke. Um, but I hope to show you that it's universal for a reason. Um, now marijuana is legalized and uh, marijuana and cigarette smoking, nicotine, widespread. And one of the things I hope to show you is that, you know, despite the damages they cause, there's a deep evolutionary reason that all of us are designed actually to take in these plant neurotoxins. They had a, an original evolutionary purpose that in some parts of the world are still crucial uh, as antimicrobials, antiparasitics. Um, most of us forget the problem of uh, cigarette smoking in the United States. One out of six Americans uh, smokes, that's 68 million people. There are about a half a million deaths a year in the United States uh, from one of the uh, cigarette-related uh, illnesses. And in my business, we know that half of people with serious mental illnesses, your individuals who suffer schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, Half of uh, people with serious mental illness smoke, and half of those people 
will die of uh, cigarette-related cigarette uh, illnesses and will often die young. So uh, I think everybody uh, both has our own folk psychology uh, explanations for why we abuse substances. This was Vincent van Gogh's. And in my uh, profession, there are numerous theories about why uh, we utilize substances. And my argument is that all of them are incomplete because they don't take a basic fundamental evolutionary perspective and start and go from there. And Vincent again, the, Van Gogh's theory, would you mind uh, uh, back? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Vincent Van Gogh's quote was, uh, if the storm within roars too loudly, I drink a glass too many to stun myself. Hmm. Um, and the, the, the bottom line is, why would the consumption of potentially toxic substances be universal? Why is it part of human nature? And if it's part of human nature, evolution has to be uh, involved. And as you think about it, these are deeply biological phenomena. We are, we are consuming uh, plant products. Uh, these are deeply biological experiences and phenomena. And as uh, Dobyshinsky once said, and I, I think it's one of the best quotes of all time, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. <laughs> This is the standard view of evolution by natural selection, that a trait of an individual that augments survival and reproductive success is what goes into the organism. We now know you need to take Darwin, combine Darwin with Watson and Crick genetics, and the basic modern Darwinian synthesis is that natural selection works at the level of the gene. And if you think about it, that's gonna make sense because what's the fundamental unit of life? It's DNA, life as the Les Murray, Australian poet says it beautifully, life's slim volume spirally bound. Mm. And Beautiful. so that's where, that's where evolution acts. And so uh, something that augments the genes is going to survive. So you can start to see, I hope, that if I abuse substances and it may hurt me physically, it may damage my body. If it in some way augments the survival of my genes, the survival and reproductive success of my genes, that's all natural selection care about. I mean, it's not gonna necessarily care about the cirrhosis that I may have uh, from alcohol or some of the lung problems from uh, smoking cigarettes. If it in any way augments my survival, but crucially, reproductive success, the reproductive success of my genes, that's what counts. Uh, we see it in the pandemic. Darwinian fitness is not strength, it's reproductive success. So the genes in the coronavirus that mutated, that created greater infectivity and greater reproductive success for the coronavirus, those are the genes and the viruses that proliferate, the Delta variant, and I'm sure other variants that we've yet to see. It operates at the level of the gene. So that's the modern Darwinian synthesis. And some of you who've heard me before, I think have heard that. The main other point, first is modern Darwinian synthesis. The second is that we are risen apes, not fallen angels. And that the human evolutionary past is what is going to frame our experienced present. All of us carry the legacy of Lucy, of Homo erectus, Homo habilis. And uh, you have to step back. I mean, even if you just take our genus alone, Homo, 
2.4 million years ago, right? And, and for most of our evolutionary history, we lived in small hunter-gatherer bands on the savannas of Africa. Life was harsh. And it is here that we probably started to consume plant neurotoxins and uh, develop mechanisms to control the blood levels of those plant neurotoxins, because as you'll learn, they were crucial to our survival. They were particularly effective at uh, knocking off uh, microbes and particularly knocking off worms, worm infections, right? So um, again, a way to think about this is that for most of our evolutionary history, life was an endless camping trip with close relatives. This is, uh, shows the difference in the evolution of our brains. And Homo erectus, about 2 million years ago, us, one of our skulls. And I put this up here to draw your attention to the frontal lobe area. It is the massive evolution of our frontal lobes that is you know, what probably makes us unique. Um, and we occupied what uh, Steve Pinker calls the cognitive niche. We have extraordinary intelligence, language, and it's that, it's that frontal lobe. And what made us uh, the most successful species and uh, the last surviving hominid is that cognitive uh, abilities, that cognitive niche, plus we are an ultra-social species. Um, and uh, one of the things that I hope to show you is that one of the byproducts of substance use was that it, it supercharged our, the limbic areas of our brain that helped us build social relationships. Uh, something to always keep in mind when you're talking evolution is something called mismatch theory, the mismatch between the environment we evolved in and the environment that we now live in. Um, the, the caption to this cartoon says, uh, do you wanna watch the hunting channel or the gathering network? And uh, just some examples of uh, mismatch. Uh, when you see a squirrel run in front of your car, it's going to be zigzagging because that's an ancient predator avoidance mechanism to get away from hawks and owls. Squirrels never evolved in a situation where they had to get away from cars. And the mechanism to avoid owls doesn't work against Buicks. Um, the next time you go to McDonald's and get a McDonald's Big Mac meal, I want you to think of it as a as a monument to your stone age inheritance. We all have cravings for sweets, but it's the sweetness of ripe fruits. The modern world gives it to us in Coca-Cola, a super normal stimulus that just, you know, supercharges the pleasure centers of our brain. We all have uh, cravings for fat, but it was the fat of lean game meat. McDonald's gives us these fat laden hamburgers, again, that just turn on our uh, pleasure centers. And also, think about the environment we evolved in. Starvation was always right around the corner. Now we have plentiful foods and we have plentiful foods that hijack our taste mechanisms and lead to heart disease, obesity, and all sorts of other things. And, as we'll, and when we get into this, you'll see one of the things we now have are substances that are much more potent than the wild variety that we evolved utilizing. All right. One of the original theories, in a sense, evolutionary theories for substance use is the hijack theory. And what this means is that um, substances hijack areas of our brain originally designed for other purposes. 
just like airplanes are designed to transport people, they're not, you know, designed to be human missiles. And that it looked, and, and the idea was that uh, substances hijack, particularly our dopamine system. And the dopamine system, most of you know of, it's the, the pleasure centers in the brain. Uh, the, the VTA is ventral tegmental area. That's where your dopamine neurons are located. And it's in the brainstem, an ancient part of your brain. But as you notice, it has all sorts of connections to other parts of the brain, but particularly the frontal lobe areas. And um, the dope, we tend to think of the dopamine system as pleasure, but it's much, much more. Uh, dopamine motivates attention. It motivates learning. It motivates motivation. Um, the attention you're paying tonight, the learning you're doing, a lot of that is going to be marked by dopamine, your motivation for being here. Um, salience, the things you remember will be marked by dopamine. Arousal uh, and reward. Of course, that's one of the most important things. The dopamine system is the reward system. Uh, wanting, uh, decision-making, action selection, um, sexual gratification is dopamine, but also particularly social relationships, right? And uh, what do, what do you, think about what often happens when we utilize substances. It generally increases our sociality and our enjoyment of sociality and, and bonding with people. And one of the other things I'm gonna talk about is that there is a parallel between substance use and religion. Both serve to um, bond non-kin. Religion comes from religare, which means to bond. Uh, the other thing, way to think about the dopamine system is it's the do it again system. Something is pleasurable, it motivates you to do it again. So it's the, uh, the system. And one of the interesting things about the dopamine system is that it has no natural breaking mechanism. So if you can take advantage of the dopamine system, you can create a runaway train very easily. And again, in ancestral environments, there weren't a lot of things that could give the kind of mammoth hit to the dopamine system that we can in the present with some of the substances we use. Um, I wanna show this slide, even though it's a busy slide, again, to help orient you to the dopamine system and substances. The, this is a neuron in the middle. The, the purple is a dopamine neuron. And I wanna show you how, um, how central it is and the things that impact it. And we'll start up at about 12 o'clock. The GABA neurons are your mellow neurotransmitter. When we feel mellow, that's GABA. And you notice alcohol stimulates GABA and dopamine neurons. Uh, we have our own internal opioid system we'll talk about, endo, uh, our endorphins, and that impacts the dopamine system. Um, acetylcholine uh, impacts the dopamine neurons, and that's facilitated by nicotine. Nicotine is a real hit on the acetylcholine-dopamine connection. Uh, serotonin, think Prozac, but also think LSD and your hallucinogens. Those are supercharging serotonin neurons, particularly in the visual cortex. Those are your hallucinogenic drugs. Um, alcohol also quiets glutamate, which is the excitatory neurotransmitter, anxiety, um, and alcohol calms that. And then where the dopamine neuron connects with the postsynaptic dopamine, if you look on your right about three o'clock, two o'clock on the slide, amphetamines work there, uh, cocaine, cannabis. And so you can see that we've mapped out all the areas where the substances we utilize interact with the dopamine system 
And I hope I've just shown you the centrality and the importance of the dopamine system. And again, you stimulate that system, there are no breaks, no breaking mechanism. So dopamine system. Now we've talked before uh, about the centrality of attachment. Uh, Mary Ainsworth, a psychologist, John Bowlby, a British psychiatrist, mapped out the attachment system in humans. And the basic attachment system derives from the mother-child caretaking attachment bond. But it is that system that forms the basis of uh, friendships, romantic partnerships, uh, you know, any kind of close positive relationship you have with somebody um, the basis of that is the attachment system um, of caretaking, of uh, closeness, of trust. Um, and that, this is the neurobiology of the attachment system. And again, it's a busy slide, but I put it up here to draw your attention to uh, two things. The frontal lobe areas, that PFC, um, prefrontal cortex, NAC is the nucleus accumbens, a dopamine system. Um, VTA, the dopamine system, and uh, on, the, on the slice of the brain on your right, you see medial prefrontal cortex, orbital frontal cortex, OFC, that's the attachment mechanism, but also the limbic system. The part in the back is the limbic system, which is emotion. So you can see that the frontal lobe, we think about relationships, they're connected to pleasure, they're connected to mechanisms for attachment and trust, but they're also connected to the emotional limbic centers of our brain. And uh, one of the main, the main ones is the endorphin system. Um, the endorphin system is our own internal morphine. And everybody thinks of it as for pain. It is much more than just pain. Endorphins are trust and bonding. Um, if a friend of Eric uh, just you know, touches him and you know, uh, squeezes his shoulder, he gets a hit of uh, endorphin and his frontal lobe relaxes and there's trust feelings, um, just that very little bit. Endorphins are central. What does alcohol stimulate primarily? It's these mu opioid receptors. So one of the primary things that alcohol stimulates is this endorphin system as do uh, many of the others. But um, this is one of the reasons that we sit around with people and we drink because it facilitates the emotions of attachment and bonding and trust. And Dr. Again, uh, Dr. Andy, please. Um, the mu, uh, is this for like, it sounds like it's for a cat brain or something. No, it's but our it's brain a, too. It's a Greek letter. Yeah, the, the mu opioid receptors. Um, and the mu opioid receptors in our brain are what our own internal, if you have an internal neurotransmitter in your brain, you're going to have receptors for that transmitter. So we have our own internal endorphin and we have mu receptors for our own internal endorphin. So if I take uh, opioids, those opioids uh, go to those mu receptors and I get a supercharged hit of, um, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's a supercharge of a system that's already in my brain. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you do heroin or opioids, that's a direct hit on those systems, on those receptors. Um, uh, and, and I love this, the, the, the dyad is the, is the unit of the mammal. Uh, the idea that we're sort of the Marlboro man, the lone ranger, the lone individual, 
it's just nonsense. Okay, put that aside. I mean, the the diet the, we survived as a species because we're ultra social, and and you know everything I'm telling you is something I learned from somebody else. Um, so, and I love this picture. What is, what is a dyad? I'm sorry. What, a, a, a dyad is two. The dyad meaning two oh, people. Okay. The, the dyad is the, the fundamental unit of the mammal. Um, and the, and the, we're an ultra-social mammal, an ultra-social hominid. And a lot of this is mediated, as I hope I'm starting to show you, with uh, dopamine, um, uh, endorphins, uh, and, and some of the other chemicals that get stimulated by the substances we use. Um, uh, Martin Brun is a brilliant German psychiatrist, I think makes a very good case that people who are experiencing opioid withdrawal, what you are seeing is basically uh, unadorned separation distress. That's uh, when people have severe opioid withdrawal. That is like, think of an infant who's been deprived of its mother. That's the severe separation distress. Um, now, another way of thinking about uh, substance use is that it, um, we've got our cold calculating inner chimp, you know, the cognitive part of our frontal lobes, our Dr. Spock. And we are also uh, an ultra social, like a eusocial insect. And one way of thinking about substance use is that it, it tries to disable or, or reduce our Dr. Spock, our cold calculating parts of our prefrontal lobe and uh, stimulate our inner bee, our inner eusocial uh, group loving uh, insect. Um, and that it is this, it, it is this ultra sociality that has led to uh, what is the, the crucial parts of our success, our ultra cooperative nature, the creation of culture, the handing down of culture, um, our, actually our creativity. Think about all the creation that goes with uh, you know, groups of people. Um, my iPhone um, you know, was not built by one person. Think of all the people over all the years that did all the things that went into ultimately creating that um, iPhone. And so it is actually one of the cases I'm gonna make is that um, crucial to that ultra cooperative nature to basically uh, humans as the, as the complex civilized beings that we are, you know, a lot of that came from, uh, a significant part of, came, of that came from our utilization of substances which augmented bonding. And because unlike insects, if you remember your biology, all the insects uh, share genes, right? In a, in a hive, they're, they're all genetically related. But when we get together with a group, one of the problems that we had to overcome is creating ultra cooperation between non-kin, uh, non-genetic relatives. And one of the things that facilitates that is substances. You know what it's like to journey out of a once cherished belief. Maybe you were devoutly religious, escaped a cult, or perhaps you simply navigated out of some very difficult days. And now you'd like to help someone else do the same. Recovering from Religion is a wonderful support organization for people who feel confused, troubled, and alone as they come to grips with the possibility that they no longer hold a religious belief or that they risk losing everything if they're honest with themselves and others about their journeys. These people need our help and Recovering from Religion needs yours. RFR is seeking volunteers. 
Perhaps you're formerly religious, or you have a specific skill set like speaking a foreign language. Maybe you're just a good listening ear. The RFR Volunteer Training Program will help you translate those abilities into critical assistance, encouragement, and support for the men, women, and youth who contact RFR every day from all over the world. You can relate. You can understand. And you can make their journeys easier. Join the team at Recovering From Religion and remind someone else that they are not alone and someone is here to help. To find out more, click the Volunteer tab at recoveringfromreligion.org. And it does that in part, again, by stimulating that limbic system that's, you know, sort of sitting behind the cortex, the prefrontal cortex, that limbic system is sitting there. And that's what has emotions that at times override some of our uh, suspiciousness, our uh, standoffishness, our uh, calculate, calculations, uh, um, calculating nature. Um, and in a lot of cultures, you don't trust the guy that doesn't drink because he's, uh, you know, he's not willing to loosen up, be vulnerable, and bond with you, be it if he doesn't drink or doesn't partake of whatever the, the cultural substance is. <clears throat> and, and obviously, this goes along with other things that we've discovered that help with bonding. Uh, humor, uh, again, endorphins, uh, telling stories, the upper right-hand corner, um, dancing, um, making music, not listening to music, but making music, um, but uh, not just even dancing. Here's one experiment you can do sometime with somebody is, you know, just sit with somebody and start tapping your feet together in synchrony. And then just do that for a minute or two. And then notice if you experience any feelings that have shifted, any change that you've noticed and any change in the comfort level or connection with the person that you were doing it with. There's great experiments that show, you know, and when you set up an experimental paradigm where you're not tapping in sequence or not tapping at all and tapping in sequence and, and tapping in sequence in rhythm and in synchrony, they've shown increased positive feelings, increased trust, increased uh, connectedness to the other person. Um, and so you can see all of these things are helped by um, substances we use and the end product is that greater connection. Uh, and this is also true, not just of alcohol, but of uh, nicotine, of marijuana, of uh, the other things that we uh, use. And it stimulates these positive emotions. And, and a way of thinking about emotions is that positive emotions are fitness enhancing, negative uh, emotions are things that are threatening to our fitness, um, you know, reproductive success. Um, but here's where it gets interesting, and particularly in the modern world where we have these really potent substances, because uh, substances will enhance these feelings, but it can also give you what I think of as the Kaylee mechanic, I can never, I would, I used to use Sarah Sanders, but basically it gives you fake news. Um, because um, you can have substances that give you false positive feelings. Um, uh, you know, think about it. If you've had a little bit too much to drink, you might think you're better looking than you actually are. Um, 
you might feel like the uh, the person and the the woman that you're talking to is uh, interested in you, and which is you know the furthest from the truth. And um, then it also suppresses negative feelings. Think about the risk taking that goes along with uh, substance use. Uh, so the substances can also uh, create uh, fake news that is actually, it, it can create feelings that are actually independent of an actual event. Think about it. I may start to trust somebody who maybe when I was sober, I wouldn't, you never know. Uh, but it bypasses mechanisms that signal real success or real threat, um, which can be risky and can have adverse consequences, but at times it can also have uh, positive consequences. So again, uh, drugs tend to trigger emotions that signal fitness, not necessarily happiness. Uh, and, and you wanna keep that in mind. It, it signals uh, that you know, this is a, a, a situation that may lead to reproductive success directly or indirectly. Yeah, so when you say fitness, you mean that in the evolutionary yes, way? Yes, fitness, evolutionary way. In other words, okay. in, positive emotions are associated with events that generally led to reproductive success. So if, if my reputation has gone up, I'm going to feel a positive emotion. Okay, an enhanced reputation is usually, you know, and, and all it has to do is on average, be associated with more reproductive success than the not having that emotion. Is that clear? Yeah, I can. Now, recall... there's obviously. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I can recall a Jimmy Buffett concert in which I thought I was incredibly fit, but I did not uh, end up being reproductively successful that uh, that concert. So I think right. I can completely understand what you're talking about. But but all it takes is one time. You know, I mean, there's no such thing as a negative batting average. I mean, all it takes, you know, if you if you're batting one out of 10, that's still one out of 10. You know, well, thank there, you for that. It wasn't there no. before. <laughs> I'll pat no, myself but, on the but back. you can see. Yeah, but but you can see. But so. But also, but it's broader. OK, if I start uh, trusting somebody who I might not have trusted when I was sober, I might start trusting this person. I might start working with them. It might, you know, lead, it might enhance my uh, life. And again, in Darwinian terms, all it has to do is enhance my survival and reproductive success. But it, it's not necessarily direct like sex per se, but it's anything that leads to enhanced survival and reproductive success. And as we'll see um, in ancestral environments, um, uh, utilizing nicotine and some of the plant neurotoxins actually augmented your survival. It killed parasites. And uh, the longer you survive, the more reproductively successful you have a chance of being. So an another uh, concept I want you to uh, sort of take in is something that's got a terrible name. It's called hormesis. And, and a way to think about this is, is better is to think of it as a fit bit, meaning that um, our bodies are designed to actually have a favorable reaction to low doses of otherwise harmful toxins. As I'll show you, we're actually designed to take in these toxins to regulate their blood level because they were crucial. 
And it's the same with alcohol. It's the same with nicotine, with marijuana, with coca leaves, with all of the plant neurotoxins. And it has this odd name, hormesis. But what I'm going to show you is that we're actually designed to take in these uh, substances to control the blood level because they were crucial to our, to our survival. All right, let's go back. And we're, I'm going to do it in two different ways here, and we'll go through it. We'll do alcohol first, and then we'll do the plant neurotoxins. So alcohol, 100 million years ago, the yeasts won the battle with the bacteria for ripe fruit. And the yeast won because they created alcohol and it killed the bacteria. So the yeasts took over ripe fruit um, and they produced alcohol. And other animals uh, evolved uh, the ability to pick up on the scent of alcohol. Alcohol is a tiny molecule that disperses and other animals picked up on that scent and it signaled them for ripe fruit and consume the ripe fruit. Uh, when you go to the grocery store and take a fruit and you smell it for ripeness, what you're picking up on is alcohol. If it's putting out alcohol, you sniff that and that tells you the fruit is ripe and you can eat it. Our, um, our monkey cousins can digest unripe fruit. We can't. We, we don't have the ability to, to uh, digest the, the tannins on unripened uh, uh, fruit uh, layers, the outer layers. Um, and this is the, the, the simple mechanism that evolved in not just us, but other animals. Uh, we can take in that alcohol. We have an enzyme, alcohol dehydrogenase, that converts it to acetaldehyde. That what's, that's what makes you feel bad when you're hungover. And then we have a second enzyme, al aldehyde dehydrogenase, that converts it to acetate. Think vinegar, and you excrete it. But it's that acetaldehyde that is what makes you feel um, bad with uh, alcohol. Now, ripe fruit can have you know, 5 to 10% alcohol, and we can handle that. But in the modern world, we get much more alcohol than we can immediately digest. And uh, we wake up hungover with a lot of acetaldehyde. And here's something that I think is uh, uh, worth noting. Um, well, I'll get to that in a minute, sorry. So we may not be here if it weren't for the fact that about 10 million years ago, our last common ancestor with um, gorillas and uh, chimpanzees uh, developed the ability to metabolize alcohol. Uh, it's beautiful genetic work by uh, a man named Kerrigan and some others. And about 10 million years ago, the earth was cooling, um, uh, food was, uh, uh, was uh, scarcer, vegetation was scarcer. Our monkey uh, cousins could uh, consume unripe fruit. And one of our ancestors developed the ability to uh, metabolize alcohol. And so our ancestor could use ripe fruit as a food source. So alcohol became in and of itself a, a food source. Alcohol has like seven, I think seven calories per gram. Uh, and even glucose is like five calories per gram. So alcohol became a separate food source. Um, and it was a signal that uh, fruit was ripe. We could eat it. We could get the sugars of the ripe fruit. And we could also get the alcohol of the ripe fruit. And so it is this ancestor that we owe our existence, we may owe our existence 
to this ancestor who was able to metabolize uh, alcohol 10 million years ago. Now, here's the one thing that's interesting. Some of you may know people of Han Chinese descent who can't drink. They drink a little bit of alcohol and they get very uncomfortable and they get the Asian flush. And uh, they have a genetic mutation, a couple of them, that they don't metabolize the acetaldehyde very well. So they get the alcohol, they convert it into acetaldehyde, then they can't break that down. And it's like they've got a miserable hangover that doesn't go away easily, they flush. Why did that evolve? And, and if alcohol is so terrible, why don't we all have that um, genetic variation? I mean, if alcohol is so terrible, I mean, wouldn't it be useful if we all you know, had it and couldn't stand drinking? Well, it looks like that variation, the acetaldehyde is particularly toxic to um, uh, in amoeba histolytica, which is a common parasite in rice. Um, and so this was a useful variation for these Han Chinese because it would help protect them from that parasite. Uh, and um, when it says uh, Asian flush, the flush is referring to the complexion mm -hmm. after the, the drink? Yeah, like, look, this is, this is the same man. So the, the, uh, on the left is normal. On the right is a picture of him after he's had alcohol. And he can't yeah, metabolize he, it. He can't metabolize it. He's got tons of acetaldehyde and he's got the flush. And he looks a, a lot, I don't know how to describe it, a lot more maroon uh, somewhat. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, and then you, at the bottom is a picture of the actual amoeba. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, but if you know some people who have this, I mean, they, you know, drinking is miserable for them, just a little bit of alcohol and it, it's awful. Because uh, they, they can't break down the acetaldehyde. Mm. Now, that gets us to, did man once live by beer alone? And an anthropologist, Braidwood, originally postulated this in the 1950s based on some evidence. And the evidence really came in in the late 1990s with the discovery of a place in eastern Turkey, which I think you may have heard me talk about in one of my other talks. I would look up Gobekli Tepe. It's fascinating. And the importance of this discovery was that it had always been assumed that we didn't start uh, uh, growing grain until we had settled into being farmers. And, and that once we'd settled into being farmers, that's when organized religion evolved. And the importance of Gobekli Tepe is that in Eastern Turkey, they discovered this, it's a religious site. And it was before we had become farmers. It was before we had settled down into um, a pre-agricultural community. So we're still hunter-gatherers and we get together in this area of what is Eastern Turkey. And it, uh, it had, uh, you can see they built monuments. I, I would encourage you to read about it. It's absolutely fascinating, but the importance of it, archeologic, the archeologic importance of it, one of the pieces of it is that it showed that we gathered in religious sites before we had uh, left our hunter-gatherer lifestyle. But even more, they found these bins where people had been making beer from wild barley. Uh, calcium oxalate in the in these uh, in these vessels in the I mean these are like tubs where they made beer 10,000 11,000 years ago and it was part of religious uh, ceremonies and uh, one of the theories is that we settled down into agriculture to brew better beer not to raise wheat and and that the original bread einkorn was not for eating it was to store the barley to make beer and so the beer was crucial for a number of things. 
Remember, I mean, alcohol is great calories, number one. Um, uh, number two, it loosens you up and helps people who are not related to each other to bond. It, it, uh, just like religion, it, you know, it helps bond. And uh, it's also antimicrobial. You know, they don't have uh, indoor plumbing at these places. People are exposed to um, you know, a lot of uh, toxic waste, uh, fecal matter. Um, and this is, uh, you know, is, as I'll show you, one of the important pieces of alcohol. And we, we now see um, these are uh, alcohol vessels from China that are uh, uh, eight, nine, uh, I think 10,000 years old almost. Um, and so alcohol uh, was brewed in China. And again, there, it's part of religious um, ceremonies. So alcohol and religion uh, go back a long, long ways. And I hope you see you know, the, some of the reasons. Now, people did not know it was alcohol. Keep in mind that um, we didn't actually know it was alcohol per se till the 19th century, but people had discovered through various culinary techniques that they could take honey and grain and fruit and these various things, and they could uh, cook them in certain ways and do certain things, and they would have uh, a liquid that would uh, cause the pleasant effects of alcohol which was reinforcing, obviously. But one of the reasons, one of the crucial reasons and the ultimate biologic reason probably was that they were, as I'll show you, they were antimicrobial, antiparasitic. Um, and then we get into mismatch theory. In the third century, we learn how to distill alcohol and get, some, get amounts of alcohol that you know, easily overwhelm our ability to metabolize and detox it. This is just a summary slide to show you the effects of alcohol. So alcohol, the positive sign, alcohol stimulates the GABA system. Remember I talked about GABA system as what makes you feel mellow. You know, when, when you have a drink and you feel mellow, that's GABA. Um, your internal cannabinoids. So when you drink alcohol, you get a stimulation of your cannabinoids like you do when you smoke marijuana. Alcohol also blocks the negative sign glutamate, which is the anxiety-provoking excitatory neurotransmitter, and alcohol stimulates that endorphin system, those mu opiate receptors um, uh, bonding. Um, and alcohol is antibacterial. It, remember, it kills the microbes. The, the yeast knocked off the bacteria in ripe fruit. Well, alcohol kills bacteria, including our bacteria. It also activates our immune system, our immune T cells, um, which are crucial parts of our immune system. Roman legions, if you were a member of a Roman legion, you got a, every day you got a liter of wine, crucial source of calories, crucial antimicrobial, and obviously it helps you bond with your fellow legionnaires. Uh, I love this example. <clears throat> so, all of you familiar with uh, Shakespeare's Henry V, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, the Battle of Agincourt. Well, we wouldn't have had the Battle of Agincourt if it weren't for a surgeon named John Bradmore. And he was a surgeon and metallurgist who was in trouble with Henry because he'd been forging some coins. So he was sort of under house arrest. And at the Battle of Shrewsbury, King Henry got an arrow right into his zygomatic arch. So think about it, an arrow right into the bone below his eye, deep into that bone. And Bradmore 
um, uh, broke off the, the, the shaft of the arrow. So he's got an arrowhead deep into the bone under his eye. And Bradmore and the surgeons at that time knew, I mean, they didn't know it was alcohol, but if they packed the wound with white wine and honey, it kept the wounds from deteriorating. I mean, obviously they didn't know infectious disease, but they knew that wounds would deteriorate and it would be terrible. And they could stop that deterioration with white wine and honey. And so Bradmore packed Henry's wound with honey and white wine to keep it from getting infected. And then he invented that little uh, instrument on the left and was able to successfully pull the arrowhead um, out of Henry's, uh, eye, the, below his eye socket and he survived and it healed. And we have, uh, we few, we happy few and Shakespeare's Henry V. So they, they knew that the, 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 the substance in white wine and in, in fermented honey had medicinal benefits. We wouldn't have the rise of the great cities. Think about it. They didn't have plumbing uh, if it weren't for alcohol. Alcohol protected you or at least you know, helped you survive the contaminated water that was everywhere. So the more less water you drank, the less water you were exposed to, the more alcohol you had, the, the greater chance of uh, survival. And also, I think you get along better with people living in close quarters. Alcohol also has cardiovascular effects. Obviously, it creates a positive mood. We know that alcohol reduces stress. We know it helps with sleep. We know it's an aphrodisiac. And obviously, uh, I've been hammering the point, alcohol enhances social bonding. Um, and, and notice uh, half the people in this group are holding wine glasses, right? <clears throat> so alcohol is tremendous for social bonding and particularly social bonding between non-kin. Um, this is also interesting. Let's say, God forbid, one of you has a heart attack tonight. What's the greatest predictor that you will be alive one year from now? You've had a heart attack. What's the, the greatest predictor that you'll be alive one year from now? Interestingly, it's not giving up smoking. That's number two. Uh, it's not taking your medicines. Actually, the number one predictor for being alive is uh, the number and quality of your friendships. Right? So that's another ben benefit of alcohol, potentially. Um, I, I find that, and the research has been repeated, but you, the, the best predictor of one-year survival of a heart attack is the, your friendship network. So are you linking the number of friends that you have to, the, to drinking alcohol? Like the yeah. And there are studies okay. on that, too. The, the, people that, the people that don't drink and drink alone, you know, it, it, don't have uh, as many friends. But, and, and, and there's an uh, English psychologist, uh, Robin Dunbar, has got a great article in the Financial Times on this. And I, I would encourage you to look it up. Robin Dunbar, Financial Times, Alcohol. Read it. It's just, and he summarizes a lot of the research. So, you know, your, your friendship network um, you know, it is crucial to your survival and alcohol enhances uh, social relationships. That, that, that's just a fact. And, and what I'm hoping to, to show you is the biology behind that. And, and it's deep, and also it's deep evolutionary history. Um, alcohol uh, reduces uh, dementia. It reduces metabolic syndrome. That's the obesity epidemic, uh, renal cell cancer. 
And the, the one that will surprise you is uh, actually uh, death. And this was first discovered uh, in the 1960s when you could do big computer studies. Uh, you had big numbers, and you could separate out the people that drank and didn't smoke. You could, you could have large numbers of people who just drank, didn't smoke. And it's very controversial research, but it's been replicated. So if your relative risk of death is one, and um, if you have one drink a day, every day, your mortality is better than the person who doesn't drink anything, both men and women. And, and what is, I, I find horrifying, but you know, that you can drink up, if you're a man, you can drink uh, four drinks a day, every day, and your mortality is better than the guy who doesn't drink. For women, it's less, it's like two and a half glasses of wine a day. Every day, your mortality is better, your mortality rate is better than the person who doesn't drink. And um, all right, Dr. So Dr. That, Thompson, um, please. This, I'm uh, pushing back a little bit on this. It's, mm -hmm. uh, naturally, I'm going to uh, think the more alcohol I have, the more friends I have. But um, my, my experience seems to be that alcoholics uh, can be nasty, they can be mm -hmm. pushed, they can push people away, and um, the divorce rates get higher and, uh, and, and stuff. Um, uh, right. So it, it where, where, where does that come in? Um, where, where does the well, it's, it's, it's a fact. I mean, the problem we're up against, and this is part of what I want to show the problem was up against is that there, they're always in any biologic phenomena, there are always trade offs. They're, they're, they're always going to be, there's no drug without side effects. The, it, the, everything has got their trade-offs here. And you're right. And, and the, where, where the boundary ends for, you know, okay drinking and drinking that leads to nasty drunks and divorces and job losses, you know, it's, it's a fine boundary. But, okay. uh, but, but I think what I'm, what I'm hoping to show you to, is to also kind of push back is that we tend to demonize alcohol. And, and believe me, there's plenty wrong with alcohol. I, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist. I see the ravages of alcohol every day in my practice. Uh, you know, that's, you know, I mean, alcohol, I mean, mothers against drunk driving is, I mean, they had reason, you know, a lot of drunk drivers kill people. I mean, there's no mm -hmm. question about alcohol has a lot of social costs but I'm hope I want to show you that it's deep evolutionary history is something that I think we have to take account of because alcohol, you know, is not going to go away. I mean, it, it just didn't. And, and actually one of the original attempts at prohibition was in China back in the, I think it was like the Zhuan dynasty. I mean, alcohol was devastating the, they actually tried, you know, 1920 style prohibition um, in China, but, you know, and two thirds, I think, I can't remember what the number. I mean, alcohol is not going to go away. And there are benefits to alcohol that, uh, you know, historically that have, you know, been there, which I hope to show you. But even currently, moderate drinking can have health benefits. So you know, it's, it almost seems to be uh, uh, pointing somewhat also to the mismatch theory that you had yes. talked about earlier. Right. Like, uh, us really smart apes didn't have vehicles or, or heavy machinery to drive back then. Um, or, right. Okay. No, so Eric, I mean, that, that's, that's, that, I'm glad you brought that up. That's huge. So, and, and, and writers on this also argue that 
in the past, alcohol tended to be confined to religion or to rituals. There, there wasn't as widespread drinking. Alcohol was hard to make. There wasn't a lot of it. Um, you know, so that in, at least in our, in our ancient history, you know, alcohol was not ubiquitous like it is now. And, and the mismatch theory, yeah, I mean, you know, we can go out and get highly toxic alcohol just around the corner. So it was much harder to get not only alcohol back then, but also like as we were evolving, but also um, higher, uh, higher proof uh, of versions of alcohol yes. as, as we were evolving. So yeah. that's even that is kind of a mismatch uh, for our right. no. uh, evolution. Yeah, you you and I still have a you and I still have an enzymatic system that's designed just to detoxify the alcohol that's in ripe fruit. We we haven't we haven't developed okay. any greater capacities. That's why when we drink heavily, we're hung over the next day because, you know, it takes a while to metabolize it, and we get buildup of acetaldehyde, and we feel like garbage the next day. We don't sleep well at night, and yeah, because a, a liter of wine. <laughs> Yeah, think about I mean, get. right, the Roman I mean, legionnaires, right, a liter of wine had, a day. It must have very much lower alcohol content than I think you and I would be used to these days, um, perhaps. It, yeah, but it it was still, it was not, it was not um, alcohol-free beer. I mean, it yeah. was, it was, yeah. and, and, the, and I'm, again, I, I appreciate it. it may be hard to believe, but I actually cut out slides and material. The Vikings were were drunk the whole time. I mean, the Vikings were heavy drinkers of tons of alcohol, and they were still very uh, dominant, successful warriors. And their drinking is, is horrendous. Um, all right, so um, let, let's just go, and then we'll. Um, uh, the last part of at least the substance, the substances, obviously, is plant neurotoxins, and then we'll we'll do a couple other things, and then try to finish up here, but. So the, the, the basic biology, biology here is that plants cannot run away. So plants can't run away. So what did they do? Plants evolved chemicals that could manipulate the central nervous systems of animals that would eat them. So that's what happened. Uh, 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 plants evolved neurotoxic uh, pesticides, basically that would disable the central nervous systems of uh, animals that would uh, try to consume them. And that's what we are abusing. We're using plant uh, neurotoxic pesticides. Why do we start using them in adolescence? Why do we avoid them while we're children? Um, and the reason is that uh, these we evolved this complex chemistry that allows us to take in these plant pesticides, control the blood level, and use it for our benefit. Um, and so you want to think of cigarettes and marijuana and cocaine and all, all these, these, think of it as the orkin lady, the, the, the pesticide, but it's under your control. And, and if you're interested in this, I can't, uh, I, I can't thank uh, uh, anthropologist Edward Hagen enough. This is a lot of what I'm giving you tonight is based on his work. I encourage you, he's got a fantastic paper. If you just put in Edward Hagen pesticides, it'll pull up. Uh, and he's got this wonderful article that reviews all the evidence for what I'm uh, telling you, uh, this beautiful article. Um, but there's all sorts of evidence for this ability to regulate plant neurotoxins. 
Um, if, if a child eats 10 grams of nicotine, it dies, right? Um, when you smoke a cigarette, you get 0.2, I'm sorry, 10 milligrams. Is it 10? Yeah, it's 10 milligrams a child will die, something like that. And, and when you smoke a cigarette, you, you get about 0.2 to 0.5 and you control the blood level, right? And what's the evidence for all of this? Well, we have bitter taste receptors that, you know, taste noxious substances, but we also have specific areas of our dopamine system where wanting is next to that bitter taste. So there's certain bitter tastes that we develop a desire for. Uh, we have a vomiting reflex if we get too much. We have aversive learning mechanisms for too much. Um, the blood-brain barrier protects our brain from getting too big a level of these plant neurotoxins. We have certain chemoreceptors that are involved in detoxifying them and controlling them, uh, membrane carrier proteins. Um, there's all sorts of evidence, again, for what I'm telling you, which is that we're designed to take in these substances, take them, use a small amount, control our blood level. The, the system you have in your liver to detoxify drugs is the cytochrome P450 system. Ancestrally, that is what was used to detoxify plant neurotoxins, the cytochrome P450 system in your liver. Um, but again, just like alcohol, these uh, plants that we, uh, these plant neurotoxins that we take in and control the blood level, they have uh, positive effects. Um, if it weren't for coffee, I'd have no discernible personality. I mean, I love my morning caffeine. Uh, positive mood, alertness, improves my cognitive performance. It helps me uh, uh, push back against exhaustion. Uh, caffeine, nicotine, cocaine, they, they, they decrease insulin resistance, which means your insulin is more effective. The obesity epidemic is insulin resistance. Um, it helps me with fat metabolism. It's an ant, they're all antioxidants. Um, um, so you can see that there are health benefits to all these plant neurotoxins if we take in a fit bit, if we take in a small amount and control the blood level. Um, we have our own internal marijuana. Again, the endocannabinoid system. And this is what marijuana plants evolved to manipulate. Um, uh, mammals have their own internal THC. And as you can see, it is involved in all sorts of crucial functions in our bodies, our endocannabinoid system. Um, suppresses cancer, crucial for appetite. Think of your HIV patients, fertility, pain, um, cardiovascular uh, in, in our immune system. Um, and our in, we have two main internal cannabinoids, anandamide and AG2. THC hits the anandamide, the cannabidiols uh, hit the AG2. Um, um, uh, the endocannabinoids are what uh, help with our stress response. Uh, HPA axis is hypothalamic pituitary axis, your stress system. Um, and uh, our internal cannabinoids are involved in motor learning, uh, appetite, pain, pleasure. So when we smoke marijuana, we're augmenting that, right? And, and again, we, even though we can take in large amounts, we control the blood level. Um, these are also nutrients. These, you know, in, in harsh environments that we evolved in, these also provided calories. 
But the crucial thing that these uh, neurotoxins did is that they could uh, uh, knock out worms. If you remember, if you took uh, biology, the tapeworms and the worms that infect us are able to disable our immune system. So how do we deal with worm infections if our own immune system is not particularly good at handling it? We learn to take in these plant neurotoxins, which would kill the worms and would also keep us from getting uh, infected again. Um, and these are just some of the worms that infect human beings. And a third of the world's population still has to deal with uh, worm infections. So this is not something that's just our ancestral history. Why do we smoke marijuana? Why do we smoke some of these things? Because it turns out that most of these worms, their larval stage um, is in our lungs. So if we smoke the stuff, we kill them at the larval stage. Also, these plant neurotoxins disable mosquitoes and uh, vectors of um, obviously things like malaria and other infections. Um, I had never considered that. I know like, like so many of us are so far away from having a, a parasite like a worm in our body. Right. And, uh, but it still affects uh, a large amount of people these right. days. Uh, and that, I, I never thought about parasites being affected by yeah. uh, this stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I find it just mind-blowing stuff. It's just, it's fascinating. And again, uh, some, a lot of this is Ed Hagen's work. I mean, he went to Africa and he could show that men who smoked uh, nicotine um, uh, had lower parasite loads. Um, he, oh, wow. he, he, he collected fecal samples. And so, you know, you may be getting all sorts of bad stuff from the nicotine. It doesn't help your lungs in some ways, but, mm -hmm. you know, if a uh, if you've got infected by worms, they could kill you. And if you can knock them out, that enhances your survival. So the kind of the calculation, maybe some of these folks were making, um, yes, I might die uh, at a not so young age, but it's a lot longer out than getting worms and uh, being affected by the parasites. Exactly. Exactly. So again, what the, the, some of the take-home points here, and I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but two of the, the crucial take-home points here is that probably the ultimate biologic function of alcohol and the plants that we use and abuse, the ultimate biological function was as antimicrobial, anti-parasite. I think that was their crucial view, their crucial function. But they also had the side benefit of uh, impacting our mood and enhancing social bonding. I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the common denominator of all of these uh, substances. Um, reinforcing social, oh, and think about the people in the Andes who chew coca leaves. It, it, it counters fatigue, it enhances physiologic function, reinforces social bonds, but also it may have been a way of signaling mate quality. Remember we were gonna talk about sexual selection, okay? And think about the, the men who try to demonstrate that they can hold their liquor, right? Um, and if you remember sexual selection, what is sexual selection? The females choose, and in, 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 in peacocks, the females choose the male with the biggest, brightest tail. And that's who the female will mate with, the, the peacock with the biggest, brightest tail. And it turns out the, the male with the biggest, brightest tail has the lowest parasite load. So 
the big bright tail is an advertisement for good genes and a good immune system, which is what you'd want your offspring to have. Um, and so these are called handicaps. That big tail on a peacock is a huge handicap, but it advertises that male's genetic immunologic worth. Um, and so it, one of the theories is that at least in our species, some of uh, substance abuse behavior, particularly by men, is displaying handicaps. You know, they've got such good genes, they can withstand the toxic effects of all these substances. Um, advertise sexual maturity. Now remember, up until recently, people didn't have birth certificates. How do you, how do you advertise that you are sexually mature? You know, no, nobody's gonna card you. You don't, you don't have a birth certificate, you don't know your age, but your ability to handle these toxic substances, as we'll see, was an advertisement of sexual maturity. Women are less likely because these uh, substances are toxic to uh, fetuses. Um, and in the modern world, women can take birth control and, have, and, and schedule the timing of, uh, usually can schedule the timing of conception. Um, this guy just went uh, maybe a few beers too far. Um, uh, failed the peacock tail test, I guess. Um, but what is even wilder, I think, is that there is substantive evidence that this ability to take in these chemicals, these plant neurotoxins, control the blood level of them, and use them to, as anti-infectious agents is actually the control mechanism is our immune system. And it turns out that when we are infected, we may upregulate our, some, our, 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 we're, 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 uh, um, we're, they, they control these substances and the ability to use them as antimicrobials. Um, this is, this is a really important slide and I want you to look at it closely. I'm sorry it's so busy. Um, if you, look at the, if you look at the slide, you will see the, all the different colors represent different cultures, okay? Um, and the, this is one of Ed Hagen's slides. And if you, look at the, if you look at the bottom line, that's age, okay? And what it shows is that regardless of what the substance is or what the culture is, children are not using substances. But then in adolescence, there's a switch and adolescents start to experiment with or use these substances. And, it, and by the time people are in their 20s, they've had or used or experimented with these substances. And this is cannabis, cocaine, alcohol. I can't remember what the other one is. Now, the reason this slide is important is it basically shows that what we're talking about here is a human universal. So this is across multiple cultures, and it shows a basic human nature developmental switch. Children don't abuse these substances, and then they start utilizing them in adolescence into adulthood. And why? Because as children, they can't detoxify these things. Their livers are not big enough, um, and also they probably at this point in their lives are not infected. But as soon as they start to reach sexual maturity, they start to experiment with and use and utilize these 
substances. And, and again, this is just across innumerable cultures. Um, and this is called pharmacophagy. Basically, you basically are eating substances that are medicinal. And we're not the only species. It looks like our Neanderthal cousins did it. These are just some of the other species that have evolved the ability to utilize um, alcohol and plant neurotoxins to control parasite infections. Um, you remember Carl Linnaeus mapping out, um, uh, you know, classifying plants and animals. One of the reasons for this was that if you remember, you know, the only medicine we lost your audio. Um, I can still I'm hear not sure what happened, Eric. <clears throat> and can you hear me now? Yeah, I think it might be on your end there. Eric. No, I never lost him, Eric. Uh, Trent, can you? Yes. Okay. I think you're good. We'll go ahead Dr. Thompson. I think we're having more going on technical end. issues. Yes. Okay. Well. Um, I'm getting close here, believe it or not. Um, so uh, Carl Linnaeus started to, one of the pressures to classify plants was that up until, you know, really only recently, our only medicines came from plants. And so there was, there was utility in understanding the classification of plants. Um, now, to get to Eric's point earlier, we've got a tremendous mismatch. The the things we have now were rare in the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. They're now plentiful. Uh, we can cultivate stuff that's far more potent. We've got new and dangerous routes, intravenous routes. And everybody knows the increased potency of marijuana, the increased you know, crack cocaine, heroin, um, Oxycontin, which is like a you know, pure narcotic. Um, and this is one of the things that you know, overwhelms the system that I've been outlining for you. Um, I want to talk just two more little things about evolutionary biology that are important. Um, life history, life history theory. Um, all organisms compete to harvest energy and to convert it into reproduction. And selection is obviously going to favor efficient capture and allocation of energy. But all organisms face trade-offs, and they have to prioritize fitness-enhancing, reproductive successful activities. And so there's somatic effort, building a body, reproductive effort, actually competing for mates. Uh, again, somatic effort is resources, um, uh, acquisition of skills and knowledge, whereas reproductive effort is uh, immediate reproductive success, competition, mate acquisition, reproduction. And so there's trade-offs, present versus future, mating versus parenting, quantity of offspring versus quality. And so you have two things. You have a slow life history like elephants, few offspring, highly invested, fish, very rapid, um, very rapid uh, uh, reproduction. So you can see there's a fast life history, a slow life history. One of the things that's unique about humans is that we have both. We can do slow life history, we can do fast life history. Um, and you can see, um, early maturity, uh, early uh, initiating sex early, uh, many partners. Uh, um, there's all sorts of things associated with fast life history versus slow life history. Um, 
slow life history for humans, secure attachments, long-term planning, pro-social, uh, quality reproduction versus quantity, fast life history, insecure attachments, short-term thinking, um, quantity versus quality, um, violence, and substance abuse. In our species, substance abuse facilitates a fast life history. Um, and uh, with a fast life history, you're vulnerable to that false news, that false signal that substances give that make you feel like it's risk-taking. Um, uh, and, and, and also substances mitigate a lot of the stress of harsh environments. Uh, and there's a diminished frontal hippocampal connection. So you're, you're running on limbic lobe, not prefrontal cortex. Now, I'll, I'll, um, some of you may uh, have seen the movie or the play West Side Story. And the song, uh, Officer Krupke, I think embodies fast life history and substance abuse. Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you got to understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Um, our mothers are all junkies. Our fathers are all drunks. Golly, Moses, naturally, we're punks. Dear kindly judge, your honor, my parents treat me rough. With all their marijuana, they won't give me a puff. They didn't want to have me, but somehow I was had. Leaping lizards, that's why I'm so bad. And I think this is important because, again, we tend to think of poverty, you know, and, and fast life histories and, and in a very diminished way. It's biology. These people are, a fast life history is a way of, of, of living. It's a way of basically earning a living. Um, now, it's usually poverty, but not necessarily. If you look at the biography of President John F. Kennedy, that's a fast life history because of harshness and difficulties in his early upbringing. Um, and I think, you know, we're getting long on time here. And I think I hope I've, I've given you um, I, I, I hope, uh, things to think about. And the last part of my talk was about, um, was about something called cliff edge selection. And I think I can, you know, put that aside because the, the main points I wanted to make, I, I think I already have. And so let me just um, um, uh, go here to some things at the end. Wait a second. Yeah, um, George Richardson, I think, has done some lovely work that people who recover from substance abuse tend to get into slow life histories. Now, do they get into slow life histories or if they can get into slow life histories, it helps with recovery? Um, uh, let me just go back here. Okay. Let me just finish up with this. So what is the implication of uh, what I've been saying? And I, I hope you've started to see that the implication is that there but for the grace of good fortune go all of us. Uh, we should not have a moralizing position about substance use and substance abuse. There should be no blame game. Um, substance use and abuse is part of the very machinery that we evolved uh, coming out of our early hunter-gatherer life. 
um, that we are actually uh, designed for or evolved for alcohol, nicotine, marijuana, caffeine, coca leaves, opium, you name it. We're evolved for that because they were crucial to our survival. They're antimicrobial, they're antiparasitic uh, function. And they were also crucial towards building the ultra social species that we are. And it's that ultra sociality that has made us the last surviving hominid and, and the most successful uh, species on the planet. Uh, so, uh, you know, try to get into a slow life history and um, thank you very much. Oh, Dr. Thompson, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, I, there's a, there was a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's actually, there's actually, there's actually too much. Yeah. Uh, I'm, and I'm, I'm working to get my mind uh, wrapped around sort of like a, a final type of message. Um, and it seems like uh, you, you kind of said at the end, like we evolved to use these substances because it, it increased our fitness in the evolutionary term where we were mm -hmm. able to um, pass on our genes and um, uh, become, or, you know, ensure the survival of our species. But um, uh, how does how does this kind of relate to uh, present day, where we are experiencing so much uh, abuse in in these in uh, where pe people are hooked on it and and addicted to it, and um, uh, and it just seems like that that's more towards the mismatch of, of mm -hmm. our modern society versus of how we evolved? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen the recent statistics, but cigarette sales are up, alcohol sales are up. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more use and abuse. Um, and, okay. and my point is that you, if you take an evolutionary perspective to this, you understand the basis of it. Got and, it. I, and, it and it gets away from stigmatizing substance use disorders. It gets in the way of... Um, um, uh, moralizing the war on drugs, the um, um, uh, incarcerations. Um, um, I think you 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 work towards acceptance and treatment, and um, and again, you know, all of us are vulnerable. Um, and and um, you know, if I think, you know, if 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 I lost my job and suffered a number of deaths in the family. You never know. I could slide into drinking a little bit too much, and next thing you know, I've got an alcohol use disorder. And that, my initial thing was like, "Oh, you're encouraging the use of of these things," but that's not really kind no. of that's not your message at all, is it? Yeah. It's just like, "Hey, this is an understanding of it. This is where we came from." Right. Well, <laughs> so it's let's, it's let's... where it's it's where we came from, and there's still. There, you're, there, there's still uh, the, the benefits of these, the benefits are not going to go away. Mm -hmm. People are going to be drawn to them because there are benefits. Um, they, they do enhance social relationships. Got it. And, and that's, and, and if you, again, I can't, I can't uh, uh, recommend it highly enough, the Robin Dunbar article in the Financial Times on alcohol from a couple of years ago. Um, and, and he lays it out. And this just is just, it's not going to go away. You know, 
you know, prohibition doesn't work, won't work. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, I mean, in my business, I would obviously, and it's connected to religion, I, I would prefer to see a scientifically based AA as opposed to the AA NAs that we have now with this, you know, that's this religious higher power submit, you know, to a higher power as opposed to no, um, like somebody just put in the chat, smart recover, the, the secular recovery movement, I think is crucial. Uh, a secular scientifically informed um, uh, substance abuse treatment. I really do like that. Now, the, the more that I'm thinking and giving some time to digest it, <laughs> I guess pun somewhat intended, um, the, that this knowing where we came from is, goes really far in helping to destigmatize this. And because mm -hmm. uh, I know um, there are times where I've been struggled with uh, uh, addiction to some substances and, and because of the stigma, I would hide it. And it would cause more harm and cause me to pull away from friends and family um, just because of the shame that was involved. Uh, and and I, I, I'm pretty darn sure I'm not the only one who has gone through that um, yeah. the series of, of uh, or that pathway of thinking. Yeah. And, and also people with any kind of mental illness suffer a lot of stress. And, and these substances are stress relieving. There's no way. There's, and we know the physiology. And alcohol, alcohol was a great stress reliever. Yeah. Marijuana, yeah. Ma marijuana. And, you know, when you first, you know, smoke marijuana, the, the impact is, you know, it, your, your HPA access quiets down. Yeah. We had a, a comment in the chat that not only does this understanding of where we came from uh, destigmatize it, but it also fosters empathy um, towards others mm -hmm. as well. And, and yeah. I really like that. that outlook yeah. Too. No, I mean, as I said, there, but for the grace of good fortune, go all of us. Yeah. And and the other thing too that I like about it is that we're all sitting on those mechanisms. I, you know, all right. of us contain these mechanisms to take in uh, uh, plant neurotoxins and control the blood level. Mm. And 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 your five year old doesn't eat the broccoli because it can't digest the plant neurotoxin, but now we can digest it and control it and. Um, and if it's weed, we can use it to kill worms that we might have, but also to get a little bit of high, get a little high and enjoy friends and music and dancing. Yeah. yeah Social Eric, bonding. I, like we were saying too, you know, about, I think there's in expositories like this, I think sometimes people make the misapprehension that you're, instead of providing an explanation, you're providing a justification for certain things. And I think that all of us, it serves us better for every instance of our lives, whether it be, you know, political or social, or in this case, you know, substance, having an explanation is certainly better than not having one. And it gives us perspective. It's kind of like when people say things like they don't see color. Well, evolutionarily, that's not true. And, you know, it's not about seeing color, it's about recognizing where we came from. And I think this is another thing like that, where uh, the better understanding we have of ourselves, evolutionarily speaking, because as you were saying, Dr. Yeah. Thomas, you know, the more that like, it's everything, right? It's right. Everything. No, not, not, knowledge is power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we have uh, quite a few questions and um, I know that we're running a little long, so we'll kind of truncate this a little bit. 
But um, uh, one of the questions that I thought was pretty good, well, real quick, would you mind uh, going back and sort of redefining uh, again for us what the slow life history is versus sure. the, the fast life history is? Yeah. Um, um, slow life history is heavily investing in um, building a body, um, building knowledge, building skills, delaying reproduction, um, few offspring, heavy investment in those offspring. Um, usually it's associated with, you know, pair bonding, oh, long-term mating. Um, you think of fish, fish are fast life history. They, they mature early, they reproduce as fast as they can. It's live fast and die young. Um, and that's slow life history. And one of the unique parts of our species is that we can do both, depending on the environment that we're born into. And if you're born into a harsh, difficult environment, that shifts you towards the fast life history. Um, usually that's obviously gonna be associated with poverty, but not necessarily, but harsh early environments, particularly relationally, you know, that can shift to a fast life history versus a slow life history. And, um, and, that, and that's again, a unique uh, aspect of our species is that we can do both. Got it. Um, Thanks. And um, yeah, it, it uh, but again, it goes to, you know, not stigmatizing, you know, the, the, the guy who, you know, starts, the guy who starts having, uh, you know, has multiple babies with multiple women by the age of 17, and, and that's morally stigmatized. That, that's a fast life history. And that young man was set on that course in his childhood. You know, and that's fast life history. Um, that's Sergeant Krupke. That's the, the beauty of that. Um, and, and so a lot of this is, again, destigmatizing and, and pulling moralization and judgmentalness out of things. Perfect. And, and, and fast life history is associated with substance abuse more than slow life history. Trent, you got something to ask? No, I, I, it, it, the, the thing I had mentioned in the, the comments and that I think it, it was correlated to is you live a life of a supernova or you live the life of a brown dwarf. You have fast and furious and you explode <laughs> into the ether or it's uh, kind of slow and nurturing. And that's what it reminded me of when you were saying that is, uh, is that sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. What are, the, what, are the, what are the two again? Brown dwarf and what's the other one? And a super, well, a supernova would go supernova. So there are a few different types of stars oh. that would go supernova. But one that, you know, some live and burn so hot and fast that they then eventually, you know, sooner than anything else would go supernova and explode. And others live a very, very long and sort of placid life. Yeah, I mean, if, there's, if, if anybody's interested in good biographies, look at the book, William Hamilton, his, it's, it's years old now, but his uh, first volume of his biography on JFK called Reckless Youth. Hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a tragic story, but JFK's, I mean, he clearly had a very uh, rough early development and illnesses and put him on a fast life history. Hmm. 
Um, there seems to be, well, and, and I, I'm not currently um, uh, uh, immersed in the, the research, but there seems to be some evidence that there may be genetic predispositions to alcoholism or sus substance abuse, like perhaps more, uh, more than average. Or, um, are you, how, how does yeah. that kind of fit in the model or does, well, is that even something? No, I think that, I think that's, I think we need to ask a whole new set of questions. Are these are these are these genes that, you know, put you at risk for substance abuse disorders, or do you just have a different shuffle of the deck of the genes involved in these basic functions of utilizing substances? I, I think I think we have to question anytime somebody says a genetic defect for alcoholism. I think one would question that. Does somebody just have a shuffle of the deck of the genes that we all have for um, utilizing substances? Uh, I'm not sure I understand that quite fully. Um, okay. Um, I understand like the shuffling of the genetic deck, but how would that apply to this? Okay, well, um, um, the Han Chinese have genetic variation that makes them susceptible not to be able to tolerate alcohol. Okay. okay, so you might have genetic variation that makes you metabolize the stuff very quickly, which makes oh. you which makes you drink more alcohol very easily than another person. Okay, but is that just is that just a variation along a norm? Is that just a variation along a norm? Or is it a a gene for alcoholism? And I, th I think what we're going to find is more that we've got you know, variations along a norm, as opposed to like Huntington's disease, where there's a specific disease, a gene for the disease. But, but I could be wrong on that, obviously. But I, I, that's what I think some of this evidence suggests is that, that we've got this complicated set of genes that are that evolved to, to take in substances and control them. And, um, it, it may be, I didn't get into it, but it may be operating on a cliff edge and it doesn't take much for us to slip over into addiction. Okay, got it. Does that help, Eric? Yeah, yeah. and you know, Dr. Thompson, I have a follow-up to that too. You know, I once had, this was an evolutionary biologist I had spoken with this about, who had said that really no trait essentially that has survived into modern day is technically deleterious it has survived for some reason yes that it's got viability if it didn't actually have any viability right. it wouldn't be here right yeah yeah no that's very good point i mean and to illustrate that it looks like one of the genes for alzheimer's disease is a gene that actually protects you against diarrheal diseases when you're a child yeah mm. Fascinating. right so no i think that's that's a very good point trunk Thank you. Yeah. And then I had a, another question in here that I found in chat, which I thought was kind of funny and interesting too. speaking about the most successful species and talking about mankind in that way. And, you know, I feel, yes, it's almost has to be the case in a way that we are in the way that we've conquered the world. But this is a question that says, are we the most successful species? I would have thought that that would be in mosquitoes no. or cockroaches. Or no, I think, no, I think it's cockroaches. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah. I, I meant, I meant, I meant, I meant, I meant to say they were the most successful hominid. That's, yeah, I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you caught me on that. No, I think cockroaches. Sure. 
I think they're it's cockroaches. <laughs> right, right. But it's probably it's probably viruses actually. Right, right. Oh, yeah, Something yeah. with the longevity and ability to take yeah, advantage and, of life. Yeah, and somebody put up a great line in the chat: "Success is in the eye of the organism." Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, very much so. <laughs> Good point. Um, so uh, we. Uh, it's, do do conspiracies theories? Like we're kind of going a little bit off topic, but this is kind of a question that had uh, that is uh, connected to that dopamine feedback loop that we talked about, and the uh, and, and how it's kind of related to addiction. Do conspiracies theories and and that kind of thinking have a similar uh, um, pathway, perhaps in the brain, as some of these uh, drugs or, or these drugs or alcohol or substances? Um, I don't know, but that's a good question. Because they they've got to be reinforcing, so one would could postulate it, sure, that they, yeah. they in some way are reinforcing, or bring some pleasure, or some. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we got time for two more questions. Trent, you want to get one? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm trying to uh, tag all of the ones that we've had so far to see if I don't uh, miss any. I've asked, you know, we've asked if you've gotten them directly. Uh, send them. And if you have them, please send them now. Because I'm trying to find something that we haven't addressed yet. There's a question here about like, can you change a fast life trajectory, I suppose, which I think is a <clears throat> philosophical and maybe psychological question that I'm not sure we're equipped for. One of the other questions that we got in the chat was uh, talking about Hagen, uh, uh, that researcher that wrote the paper mm -hmm. um, uh, about um, pesticides, less ingesting pesticides is, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, did he account, in this paper, did he account for factors such as uh, perhaps the people who can afford to smoke being more wealthy, and so being more wealthy would contribute them to have less parasites in general, like, were that were those kind of factors taken into account? I, I, I don't believe so, but he was, he was researching, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a, you know, sort of laying out the biochemistry of it. I'd, I'd have to look at the paper again. I, I don't remember there being, he's got an excellent discussion in there. And this is why I would encourage people to read the paper. I mean, I think it's a brilliant paper, but he's also got a very good section in there about why men and women abuse at different amounts, the difference between the sexes. Mm. Um, but in the, he, he studied hunter gatherer tribe in Africa or a, 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 just a, a, a sort of I don't know what they call a minor horticultural society and where he was studying the men's use of nicotine and measuring parasite load. Hmm. It was not in a, I don't, it wasn't in a tribe or a group that had great disparities of wealth is my memory. Got it. Yeah. Do you want to take the last question? Yeah, sure. We've got one here. It's is CBD snake oil. Like, does it have a, actual effect in the same way that these other substances have or is it kind of all bunk no i mean i think i, I think we're going to learn more i mean i think cbd does have a, a role in therapeutics i, I think that's it, it but you know it's it's hard to separate out good quality research from hype but people are trying to do you know placebo control trials uh with cbd and um, uh, particularly, I think, for the control of pain. Um, so I, I think you're going to find, you know, it's going to take time, 
but I think you're going to find some genuine therapeutic uses for CBD. But the problem you have to you have to be concerned about is the CBD you get on the market these days usually has some THC in it. And at least in my business, you know, you know, people, the, the people I work with tend to be sensitive to THC. THC doesn't help them and exacerbates their illnesses. Um, Got it. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and well, doing this again. This no, uh, uh, thank you all for having me. Thank you for your patience. I knew I, I, I thought I might be able. I thought I might be able to get it all in, but it was a little bit too much. And I appreciate your, your the fool's your, your errand, patience. my friend. I saw over 140 slides. I'm like, no freaking way. <laughs> I got I, it. It was a first, when, I, when I when I gave it, I, I got it an hour the first time, but you know. And I, and I actually, I know you're not going to, I know this may be hard to believe, but I actually was taking out stuff. But again, thank you. Cause I just, I just, I just think everybody ought to have as much of this yeah. as possible because yeah. I think it's interesting. It's important. And um, yeah. And again, just thank you as always for having me. Yeah. Recovering from religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope healing and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering from Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.